everybody, I'm Jacopo Dettoni, and this is the FDI Podcast. The World Investment Conference, organized by WAPA, took place in Xiamen on the Chinese Easter Coast just a few weeks back, bringing together dozens of investment promotion agencies from all around the globe. Our development finance editor, Adrian Klaza, was there in Xiamen and joined us today to share her main takeaways from the event. Adrian, these first weeks of September have been again dominated by the trade feud between the US and uh, China. This must have resonated deeply in the mind of anybody dealing with trade and investment promotion in and out of China. So just to get started, what was the mood at the conference there in Xiamen? Good to be here. Um, I mean, I think that, you know, there was a lot of energy at the conference and people were talking about a lot of interesting work that they were doing at the national and subnational levels um, through their investment promotion agencies. However, yes, anxiety about um, world trade was very, very high, high um, because of the uh, China-US trade war um, ramping up. I was there just as sort of the second round of American tariffs um, sort of the the applications for exe- exemptions were coming to a close on sort of that next round of $200 billion in tariffs. Um, so I think that there was a lot of anxiety about what that would mean for the China-U.S. relationship and what that would mean for the rest of us, too. I mean, th- these are the two biggest economies in the world. And at the same time, you know, you already have a lot of turmoil in emerging markets. Um, sure. So there are a lot of a lot of different things in play. And obviously, trade and investment, they generally tend to go hand in hand in a way. So, uh, the, again, the, the, the conference organized by, by WAPA uh, brought together like this investment promotion uh, officers from uh, literally all around the globe. Uh, but it was definitely, I guess, interesting uh, for you to see also to be there in China and to get to see Chinese uh, IPA and speak to them. So do you speak to any and what was their perspective on possible repercussions on uh, investment into in and out of China? I mean, it seems like uh, China, specifically at the subnational level, is putting a lot of effort into investment promotion. I mean, every region in the country was sort of at WIPA and also at CFIT, um, and they were keen, very keen to sort of promote the various different things that were happening in their in their regions um, to the world. Uh, one of the IPAs that I spoke to um, was Invest Shanghai. Um, so Shanghai is sort of the second city in I think the commercial capital of China. Um, and their president, Sun Xinhua, uh, talked to me a little bit about the kinds of challenges that he's looking at and that his members are facing. Take a listen here. There is a trend towards unilateralism, protectionism. This kind of unpredictability, you know, poses a lot of risks. And another, specifically for Shanghai, the cost. The cost is uh, going higher and higher. The labor cost, living cost, etc. So I think that that was sort of one of aspect of the things that he was worried about. Um, but he was also speaking sort of quite specifically about how different firms um, within his association felt about um, what was happening between the Chinese government and the Trump administration. Take a listen here. It depends on the the firms we have uh, surveyed. Some of the firms see immediate impact by the particularly the Trump you know yeah. policy, and some others will say you know in the long term they will be affected, mm-hmm. but in the near future they, they are. Quite okay. Right. And it's interesting that this all is happening uh, at the time where, uh, as you pointed out and uh, you pointed out, uh, there is a sort of a par- paradigm shift in China. China is not 
anymore that sort of uh, cheap uh, manufacturing up, a cheap labor manufacturing up that used to be 10, 15, 20 years ago. Uh, so also the nature of the investment they are capturing is very different. Probably now they are capturing much more uh, technological advanced investment. They are capturing investment of company looking at the domestic market and not anymore looking at uh, their place in uh, uh, in their place in uh, global supply chains. Uh, so it's definitely interesting to see how these IPAs are adjusting their strategy according to this kind of uh, cyclical shift of the economy, but also this sort of uh, unpredicted, uh, unpredictable uh, uh, challenges coming from uh, from the U.S. in this case. Well, and I think that those two trends actually reinforce each other. I mean, you do have both at the sort of policy level, at the at the state level in the Chinese government, you know, a desire to shift towards a consumption-based economy at the same time as that you have sort of purchasing power um, rising within China because people have joined the middle class by the hundreds of millions in right. the past two decades. Um, and at the same time, you know, you are sort of seeing this turn inwards because of global factors that, you know, are, are basically this trade war is reinforcing um, where, yeah, I think that, you know, for the Chinese economy, maybe over the next couple of years, if this trade war drags on for a while, you know, the internal consumption focus and the sort of bringing the economy up higher up the value chain is going to be very much more um, what they're thinking about versus, you know, low cost manufacturing. Sure. For export. And obviously, also because these these uh, these tariffs, they are not. Uh, I mean, they, they they are sort of like hitting all the parts involved like on both sides of the the ocean. Both uh, Chinese companies dealing with import and export on, on uh, foreign trade, and obviously also American companies, uh, U.S. companies doing uh, uh, foreign trade. So. I guess you you do you, you manage to get this kind of uh, uh, double perspective on these tariffs and the uh, trade feud? Sure. So I mean, I did speak to some Chinese companies, um, sort of based in southern China, and as you would predict, um, if they were importers, um, they are being hit by U.S. tariffs. They're having to change um, the routes of their supply chains, maybe changing from you know American suppliers to ones in Canada to ones in Europe. Um, the really interesting thing is I interviewed the president of the American Chamber of Commerce in South China, though, um, sort of about basically the impact of the trade war. And he has sort of 2,300 members that are a mix of sort of Chinese companies, but also American companies that are operating in China. And he talked about the fact that American companies that are based in China are also being hit by the tariffs, and that's having a very negative impact. You'll hear in the quote here. American uh, companies who actually produce the high-tech components that are shipped to the United States, uh, they, 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 they tell me that the fact that there's not a 25% tariff on their products going to the United States, companies uh, from Germany I mean, are, are more competitive. Products made in Germany by German companies are more competitive. So actually this is resulting in, uh, in the shift of orders from uh, American companies, which creates American jobs. Uh, to German companies, which basically was to benefit the German economy. And so those are th really the things that our members are reporting as the difficulties that they face. So, yeah, I mean, obviously this is interesting because uh, clearly the U.S. has been a, a main a major, if not the main source of foreign investment into China for, for many years now. And uh, U.S. corporations have uh, made the most of uh, the cost advantages that they could find in China. And as far as I as as far as I'm aware, some products like 
hit by the tariff. They are products belonging to the the, the aerospace supply chain, or and actually the the CEO of Boeing pointed this out at a conference this summer. Um, but also in, in auto, automotive automotive parts, and so obviously all these products that they may be manufactured directly or by local suppliers by U.S. corporations to 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 be shipped back to the U.S. for final assembly. Uh, they they've been hit by 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 tariffs and therefore uh, there is a co- in a, 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 an additional cost component that these companies have to to deal with. Yeah, and I mean, uh, Mr. Sayden, when I was speaking to him, I mean, he was talking specifically a lot about sort of high tech manufacturing, much of which takes place in China. Um, for the companies that he works with, um, they're having to look at where they're going to reorient their supply chains. I mean, and that's a multi year process. I mean, you can't just up and find a chip manufacturer of similar quality to, you know, a company that's been in China for 10 or 15 years in Vietnam or Laos or somewhere else that's not being affected by the trade war in the same kind of way. Um, So those kinds of plans are starting to be in motion and they will have long term effects, both on the Chinese economy and on sort of American consumers. And there is also an interesting statistical, uh, if you may, component of this whole story. Uh, I was recently at, at the dinner where there was a, a member of the Chinese embassy here in London. And he pointed out, for example, for iPhones, that iPhones, they are uh, sold for $1,000, say, in uh, in the U.S., the latest model. And uh, and the FOB in the trade balance uh, uh, accounting, the FOB, or the value of the iPhone is actually $1,000. But Chinese, uh, the Chinese plan just assemble all different components imported from all around the region. And so he was saying that for China itself, that iPhone, uh, the value of the iPhone was $7. Maybe this is also a stretch, but say that it's $200, $300. Still, there is a $700 that there, you know, it's kind of, it's a gray area because for uh, trade accounting, that's uh, that's a $1,000 imported by by the U.S., but for China, China retains just like $300. So it's also, there is also an interesting twist uh, to to this. But let me say that I I just checked also like at more macro level, uh, going back to investment, the figures of a greenfield investment by U.S. into into China. And it's interesting to see that uh, over, over the last three years, it hasn't really changed, at least in the, in the period that I saw, like gen, from from January to July. Um, but it, the percentage of U.S. investment over the total of uh, the FDI attracted by China deeply uh, sharply decreased. So uh, in the first eight seven months of this year, uh, American U.S. investment accounted for ten percent of a total FDI into China, whereas in the previous two years, it was well over 20%, 26% in 2017. So this, again, probably tells you that China uh, is such a big market and the interest on the Chinese market is so high that they they may be able to replace any any falling uh, U.S. investment by, by looking at other markets. Well, and that's actually... An interesting point. So I, I talked to some European IPAs also while I was in China. Uh, specifically, I talked to um, two representatives from the Czech Republic 
Um, and they were actually saying that even though there are also trade tensions um, between the U.S. and the EU at this point, actually the trade war between the U.S. and China might present some interesting opportunities for Europe. Um, so this is uh, Jan Zapletel, who is the director for China and Southeast Asia at Check Invest, um, the national IPA. I'm going to read out this quote. Um, Technically, I think this will only be a benefit for the Czech Republic and the rest of Europe. Chinese companies are having to look for different bases. So I think it's only natural that they would be keener to talk with the Czech Republic and the rest of Europe. Interesting. Yep. Again, I think that that's perhaps a slightly simplified version of events because I also talked to his colleague um, who works as the head of the economic section at the Czech embassy in Beijing. And... You know, the trade relationship and sort of business relationships with China, both for Europeans and also for the U.S., which is part of what is prompting, you know, the trade war now, it's complicated. So the Europe, the European Union has been trying to negotiate a free trade agreement with China for years now. I, I, I can't even remember off the top of my head how many years this has been going on for. And there are still a lot of pro- problems with sort of ref- reciprocity in terms of openness of markets, in terms of um, forced technology transfers and stuff like that. So, you know, as much as, yes, Chinese companies um, will be looking for different bases, this is not going to, this trade war in and of itself is not going to completely repair sort of the EU-China relationship or fix all of the sort of lingering issues that are are residual there. Well, this is interesting because uh, also other... uh, IPAs or anyway uh, uh, investment promotion uh, uh, persons dealing with investment promotion elsewhere they they are also adjusting and trying to 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 grab any opportunity opportunity along the way from this uh, trade war i was recently in central america and south america and for example free economic authorities in free economic zones in uh, in uh, in panama and colombia they are actually trying to, they are very keen on exploring opportunities along the way of becoming a way, a third party country uh, through which Chinese investors can get around um, uh, US sanctions. Panama is a perfect example because they have uh, a free trade agreement uh, with the US and they are hoping to have one in place with China by the end of the year. So that would be like a perfect scenario for a Chinese company to come in, uh, produce, manufacture whatever product they want to manufacture, re-export it to the to the U.S. Uh, with Colombia, it's there is not a free trade agreement with China, but there is one with the U.S. and also like free 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 trade zones, special economic zones in Colombia. They give anybody the opportunity anyway to lower dramatically import costs so again it could be like a very good base for chinese companies to re-export to the u.s and this applies not only for colombia and panama but many other central american uh, countries including actually mexico even though now with the new nafta renegotiated nafta uh, rule of origins they are a bit more they, they 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 are supposed to be a bit stricter than it used to be in the past well, that's interesting. I mean, if Europe does get this free trade agreement signed with China, which some European uh, diplomats that I spoke to actually felt that given 
that European markets are going to be more important to China over the next couple of years would give them more leverage in the free trade agreement and negotiations. They will be competing directly with those that you spoke to in South America. So it'll be interesting to see how those market dynamics play out against each other. Yeah. And uh, and uh, I guess another interesting angle of uh, an investment promotion conference uh, in China is goes beyond China, but it would be like the inter inter Asian investment. Uh, there was a report by the ADB a few years ago that pointed out actually that uh, in- internal flow inter Asian flows of investment they are dramatically rising. Uh, obviously, China. And uh, places like China is a major source of capital, but also other countries like Thailand, India, they are becoming uh, obviously Japan, Korea. They are obviously major. They already are major sources of uh, foreign investment, regional foreign investment. Uh, so do you manage to get any any insight on the latest development there? Um, to a certain extent. I mean, I think that, you know, in terms of China's development philosophy, if you want to uh, call it that, Um, you know, they very much see their focus as being on South-South cooperation. So they don't see themselves as being sort of a developed nation that is sort of using their economic prowess to sort of develop develop sort of poor countries. They, They want to present themselves as being a peer, as being a country that very recently had a lot of poverty but has succeeded in lifting 800 million people out of poverty. So, I mean, I think that can also, there's also a lot of uh, debate right now and sort of some tensions about sort of the nature of how, you know, that development philosophy is playing out. But um, I did speak to sort of the Director General for Investment Operations at the Asian Infrastructure Investment Bank, which is not a Chinese policy bank, so it's not a state bank, but it is heavily backed by China and is based in Beijing. Um, and I sort of talked to uh, Don Lee, who is the director general, um, you know, about where their focus markets are and where they're looking to really expand their portfolio. Um, so take a listen to this. Naturally, countries like India, Indonesia, mm. Vietnam, you know, large, uh, uh, you know, fast-growing uh, infrastructure uh, much needed, a lot of infrastructure gap. Mm. Those are, will be naturally our focus areas. Mm. But we are expanding our exposure to, to now we're doing some, some, some projects in countries like Russia, uh, even Turkey, you know, all this. Uh, we are expanding our, our, our regional base. But again, we have to focus on Asia. I mean, this is uh, certainly something to, to keep an eye on, the, the development of uh, the, the, the portfolio of the um, Asian uh, Infrastructure Investment Bank, uh, also the development of the Belt and Road uh, Initiative, the vision of the Belt and Road Initiative, uh, uh, which is kind of provides a sort of the, the, the again the intellectual framework for a bank like the Asian Infrastructure Investment Bank to 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 grow and uh, invest in the region. Um, it, it, I think that right now there is a sort of reevaluation inside and outside the country about. The, scope, the real scope of the, 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 the Belt and Road Initiative. In a way, at the beginning, uh, uh, there was uh, a lot of buzz, a lot of excitement about the perspective that this could, could open uh, for countries that historically lacked a lot of capital for infrastructure investment in Central Asia, uh, Pakistan, Afghanistan, uh, Sa- Sa- Southeast Asia. 
but now after a few years after China poured and promised so much capital through official channels like the Chinese Development the China Development Bank but also through the Asian Infrastructure Investment Bank uh, I think that uh, there the, the is the, now they are taking a step uh, like a step back trying to figure out are we doing things the right way is this money spent in the best efficient way uh, and I think that the AIB is a very good uh, example of how they're trying to do things better both from a spending perspective but also from a kind of a consensus perspective trying to at least trying to spend an effort to 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 have a, a multilateral consensus of these infrastructure projects rather than uh, you know come in with their okay, financial and political power and say we want this done yeah and when you go and talk to the AIB you know they say very distinctly you know we are china based and we are focused on Asia and we do a lot of work both in China and surrounding countries, but like we are not a Chinese government entity. We are a multilateral development bank. We want to, you know, we see our peers as being the World Bank, the IFC, the IMF. So very much this vision of, yeah, not being a part of national policy, but still being willing to work, obviously, with Chinese counterparts. But I think to this point that you're making about sort of backlash on um, Belt and Road and sort of other uh, China-led um, development initiatives around the pl- uh, around the globe. I think that there are two dimensions to this. The first is the ba- backlash that's coming from basically the U.S., who sees China expanding through projects like Belt and Road, which envisions creating a new Silk Road through infrastructure, heavy infrastructure inv- uh, investment all across sort of Central Asia, um, linking China and the Far East to Europe. You know, the U.S. kind of sees this as basically a threat to their historical geopolitical dominance. So that's one aspect of it. And then the other aspect is the backlash that you're actually getting from Belt and Road recipient countries themselves. Um, So within the Chinese establishment, the way that they talk about um, Belt and Road is this is a pure de- develop this is a purely developmental initiative. So I, I spoke to uh, Z- uh, Jiang Xiheng, who is um, the vice president of the Center for Interna- uh, for International Development and Knowledge, which is part of the State Council. So it it is a state-run body, sort of focused on development theory. And she said to me, and this is a direct quote: "I think the misunderstanding is." that we have to look at this as win-win cooperation. This is not about explo- exploitation or geopolitics, which is uh, which are often exaggerated in the public imagination. For us, the biggest concern is development. It is always our major task, and we want to share those opportunities with others. So that's the state line. The win-win tag. The win-win tag. Everything is win-win. But at the same time, um, you know, there are certain aspects to the way that China engages in development finance that those in the West find disturbing. So they have something called the five no's, for instance, which is part of how they function in Africa, which talks about basically a policy of no non-interference right. with internal affairs of the countries with which they are engaging in, in investment, which means that they're not going to take stands on governance issues or corruption issues. You know, whatever happens internally there, they can do that their own way. For Western donor countries, that is a very different philosophy. Um, And at the same time, so I I started talking a little bit about this backlash, sort of particularly in Asia. So you do have countries that are recipients of Belt and Road 
um, investment and development aid, um, such as Pakistan, Sri Lanka and Malaysia, who recently have pulled out of a lot of different projects um, or are start talking about renegotiating their terms because they feel that China is engaging basically in predatory lending policies to expand their influence. And that's very much the line that the U.S. is taking right now as well. Um, there's a lot of debate about that, though, and it's very controversial. Sure. I mean, it's a, the point is that I, I think that eventually the backlash is also will also be like internal to the Chinese kind of uh, dynamics in a way that um, at the end of the story, if there is a little uh, a little um, interest in uh, the way these resources are are managed once once they 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 they, they end up in a recipient country, uh, you will you will see that a project get delayed or a project got like very weak economic uh, fundamentals, and there are already some there is already some voice of dissent within the same China about. You know what are we actually doing uh, with this Belt and Road Initiative, with all these billions that we are lending to? And you mentioned, for example, Sri Lanka. There are this, uh, there is this uh, major port and airport infrastructure they developed in the in the in the southern part of the country, and there is no commercial activity. Um, in Pakistan, there are massive delays, uh, and also it has to do with. Uh, the, the the governance capacity of recipient countries. Sometimes these countries, uh, they haven't got uh, right away. They they can't match the the development capacity of uh, of a country like China. For it's a, a, an interesting example is uh, this uh, Horgos uh, free trade zone they developed at the border between uh, Kazakhstan and China. And I visited it like a couple of years ago, and it was it had been around for at least a couple of years already. And it basically was a binational project with uh, yeah parts of development parts on both sides of the border, and the Chinese part was fully developed, but it was incredible like, with malls, office towers out of nowhere, whereas the the Kazakh part was it was like basically barred land. It was nothing was there already. It was just like, a logistics center and a couple of yurtas to sell souvenirs. And uh, I'm sure that also in that case, the uh, Chinese officials was, were not like particularly enthused by by how things were developing on the Kazakh side, and they were still struggling to 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 get any investment into that part of the zone. So, definitely, this is an internal debate uh, unfolding also within China. I think, yeah, I mean, it is the big question is, as with all of these controversial topics, is whose fault is it? Is it China's? Is it the recipient countries who haven't been running projects correctly? I think the answer in the end, obviously, given the size and complexity of a lot of these projects, probably lies somewhere in the middle. Um, and we will right. understand it in the long term. I've got an interesting quote, actually, from Peter Furman, who's the CEO of China First Capital, um, who's been in China since the early 80s on this. And maybe take a listen to that now. So I think yeah. China, now that it's got this pushback from, again, not just the U.S., though the U.S. is clearly in the lead, mm -hmm. it can't just simply say, okay, we we take it back about one belt, one road, yeah. right? We're in the five-year five year anniversary was just this past mm -hmm. week. Yeah. Or we, you know, we, we don't have these aspirations to be much more deeply interlinked yeah. in parts of the world that are not so certain about how to interlink with us. So I think the policies will continue. I think on balance... Um, Again, I would. What I'm happy to be to be very forceful about is China's 
gets um, unfairly maligned for creating financial outcomes that are usually down towards incompetence, corruption, and poor management in the recipient country. It's, uh, I mean, yeah, this is probably what we were, uh, um, what we had just mentioned. Um, I would, I would slightly disagree in a way that I, I see in the longer run, in the longer run, at least personally, the Belt and Road Initiative is losing a bit of its uh, uh, inertia. Um, for a simple reason, I think that there was something that was uh, was uh, highly overlooked in the West. But this was also a strategy for China to export a massive oversupply, overcapacity, production overcapacity they had built in the previous 20 years. Um, so all these infrastructure companies, um, they, they were basically trying desperately uh, to look out for new opportunities. And uh, this Belt and Road vision uh, kind of gave them a, a state-sponsored initiative uh, to go to countries where otherwise they wouldn't then be able to uh, to do business in, like, again, uh, Central Asia or Pakistan or Sri Lanka, Southeast Asia, whereas if they go in with uh, the Chinese Development Bank or a Chinese-sponsored initiative, you know, it's just like playing on their home uh, turf, right? So I would, uh, I would, I would imagine that as this overcapacity kind of diminishes over the years, also the the interest of China of developing uh, infrastructure in places where, because to be fair, sometimes this inf- th- there is major infrastructure that has a big uh, economic uh, return for both uh, for all the parties involved. I would I would argue that there is also there are also some projects that whose uh, whose nature and uh, economic interest can be doubted or at least questioned, and so as this overcapacity sort of like fades away over the years, maybe they will just focus through institutions like the AIB on uh, the projects that really matter, and uh, they will just like uh, cut the uh, cut anything else out. Yeah, I mean I think that. You know, I think that Peter Furman's assessment is is valid to a certain point. I mean, China is not not going overseas and undertaking these kinds of projects purely out of a sense of wanting to develop the world in the same way that, you know, any country that engages in overseas economic development is doing it partially for its own reasons, for economic benefit, for increased influence um, around the globe. I mean, I think, yeah, with China, there's, there's, there is a reckoning coming. I do wonder whether, you know, China had such a unique and incredible development trajectory. And this is the lens that they're seeing all of these external projects in other countries through is through the lens of how they did things and how they developed. And they're always going to be also disappointed with those results. You're never going to get the kind of internal return uh, internal return on, on investment that you get on projects in Sri Lanka and Pakistan or whatever that you got in China at the height of its development. Right. So I do wonder also if there are some miscalculations actually that are happening there um, in terms of the viability of certain projects for that reason. All right, definitely, again, definitely something that, uh, to keep an eye on um, and how it will develop in the future. Um, Adrian, thanks again for being with us, uh, with us today. Uh, it was interesting to, to 
get a get a feeling of uh, the, the sentiment at the WIPA conference in Xiamen uh, with all these IPAs having to deal with uh, internal and global uh, challenges. Thanks again. Thanks everybody for listening. You can find all our podcasts on fdiintelligence.com slash podcast or on Acast and iTunes. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Sick of being upsold at gyms? My guy, you're currently a base member? For $90 more, I can upgrade you to our Shred membership. For $130 more, you'll be a swole member. And for just $300 more, you'll reach Sweat Platinum. At Planet Fitness, you'll get energy without the upsell. Never pushy, always free fitness training and equipment for every workout. It's fitness that fits your budget. Join Planet Fitness for just $1 down and $10 a month. Cancel anytime. Deal ends Friday, May 10th. See Home Club for details.